is smaller better? That's the question that we're asking uh, in this podcast episode of writing better. When it comes to writing a book, do you have to write a huge grand concept for you to write a great book? Amanda Hoppy says no. She's my guest today. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Timmy. Nice okay, to be I'm, here. I'm really excited to talk to you about this. So when we were talking last, I asked you about um, this question and you shared with me that, um, that, okay, the question I asked was what's something that clients struggle to understand, but if they would just get it, if they would apply it, it would absolutely change their book. And your answer was you don't have to write about something big. And you talked about how once you read a whole nonfiction book about oranges and it was super interesting. Um, so what was this, uh, what, what, what was this book about oranges? Um, I actually had to look it up again, but I do remember the book and it, and it literally, the title literally was oranges. Um, and it was a book published in 1975 by John McPhee, who was actually a journalist. Um, and it actually, for him started out as a short magazine article. Like he was just going to do like an op-ed piece about oranges or orange juice. Um, but during his research, he just kept on finding more interesting things, more interesting details about oranges as a fruit. And then it just blew up into this whole big book that actually became like, um, I think kind of a pivotal, pivotal example of like how to do that kind of long form journalism um, in a nonfiction scenario. So it actually became a whole book and I actually encountered it in a, a master's program. Um, so as one of those kind of pivotal examples of what nonfiction can be. Um, and looking at it on my reading list, I just thought it was going to be like the most boring book out of the whole entire series that we were going to have to read for that program. But it ended up being the book I probably remembered the most. Um, and just because of his examples were so vivid. Um, and for instance, like I still remember um, that he mentioned that orange growers would go out into their orchards in Florida um, and they'd cut from the blossom end of the orange to figure out because that was the sweeter end and they'd take a bite and then throw out the rest of the orange. And the idea that an orange has a sweeter end um, where the blossom falls off of it versus the stem end, which hangs from the tree was just like, I never thought about that. It was interesting. The whole idea of like somebody just biting off the bottom of an orange and throwing the rest away just caught me. Um, and it made me come to a new respect of not only a fruit, uh, but the, I guess, cross evolution of, of people and plants about how the two, I mean, this kind of turned into his thesis, I think, for that kind of held together all these various stories um, about how uh, a fruit can kind of co-evolve with people, right? It changes the, uh, the culture of um, of humans and then humans change the fruit itself. And then that was kind of the broader thesis kind of holding all these pieces together. So very yeah. narrow topic. And then the thesis that um, made an interesting point about the whole entire thing. I thought it was interesting that you said that the book, you thought the book was going to be boring going into it. Um, what do you think? So if you're, if your thesis here is that bigger, isn't better, um, writing small, like, uh, what do you think that there's a, a thing to consider there that you thought the book was going to be boring going into it? Like, should the writer have done something different to make people 
I guess this is an interesting question. Should the writer have done something different to make people want to read the book as opposed to being surprised that it wasn't boring? <laughs> Um, I mean, probably, I mean, this was an old book when I encountered it. Uh So I'm assuming when it first came out, there was that kind of media blitz and people talking about it. I mean, obviously it had gotten enough play and cred, um, when it first dropped that it became this kind of classic, um, and then, you know, add on decades later, um, the, that immediate media immediate media blitz uh, probably goes away. And then it's only those kinds of classics that go by recommendation. So for modern writers who are talking about thought leaders, um, nonfiction memoirists, I mean, when your book drops, I mean, that is the moment and there's going to be um, people talking about it. There's going to be like social media campaigns. Um, There's going to be all these things that are, that recommendations and referrals that people like, no, you really need to read this book it's like cool because of a b and c and it's doing something totally different in the genre um and so that's um probably if for an older book like this i mean it's usually at this point word of mouth um and um people are like this is a classic you have to read it what kind of uh ghostwriting do you typically do just for our listener um, it's usually nonfiction and mostly what I've done, some memoir, but mostly uh, thought leadership business kind of industry um, books. And for the most part, those authors will know how to keep it narrow. So for instance, I think one of the easiest books I've written recently was actually for a cosmetic dentist. And he came in and it's just, he's trying, it's for his patients. Um, he's trying to uh allay their fears and kind of show them what the process of this whole thing is. Um, And that was actually really interesting to talk to him about um, because uh, it was easy to do follow-up questions. Um, And so when the topic is narrow and they know who their audience is and they know what their, um, the main goal of the book is, um, it becomes not easy, not only easy for the author to talk about, but it becomes easy for the ghostwriter to interview and to write about. Um, because when he said, you know, he had a whole chapter about like uh, sedation methods and how to make his patients comfortable. Um, and when he would talk about, you know, some of the pharmaceutical ones, I actually had an easy follow-up question. Well, what about patients that don't want to do pharmaceuticals? And then he had a whole long answer for that. Um, and so then we making a whole chapter out of that was pretty easy. Um, when they come in and they're too broad, um, it becomes really hard to find an overall structure and to put it together. Um, and some thought leaders, I think, think that they need to come in and tell you the whole history um, from the beginning of time about their topic, you know, then the how-to that they want to do, and and then, you know, other jobs like how to advocate for this or how to do um, this other thing. And then it's just, it's too many books in one. Um, and it becomes really hard to do follow-up and you're almost basically at that point saying, Hey, you have more than one book going on. This is your second book. This is your third book, or this is a book you don't even need to write because these, these historical examples already exist out there and you don't need to do this work again. What would you say to someone who wants to write something that has mass appeal? Do you just think that that's for people that already have huge established audiences 
Or what's your opinion about that? Well, but even people who are writing for, who have a big audience to start with, they're probably going to be writing something fairly small anyway. They just have a huge audience that's interested in that topic. Um, so for like celebrities, um, they're going to be writing maybe their memoir um, and they're going to have a huge audience that's interested in knowing like how they made it um, or how they overcame a particular trauma. Um, they already The audience already has an idea of what that story is and they're interested in learning about it. But that book is still about something small. Like if it's a memoir, it's not about your whole entire life. Nobody wants to know how many times you brushed your teeth um, in the morning. They It's selective. Um, one of the other short pieces that I remember is uh, another nonfiction piece that was all about toast. And she just strung together all these instances in her life where she'd encountered toast um, and made a whole life journey about that. Um, Why does someone write a nonfiction book about toast? I think partly it would be, this was a short story. Okay. So I'll, I'll just do that. It was a short piece. Um, maybe the challenge, like <laughs> let's take a kind of off the wall. And it was intriguing. It's like, I want to know how you can make toast interesting. Um, and then it was like, you know, how um, she fed toast to her dog and how her grand, the way her grandmother made it. And so it became this kind of, expose on her and her grandmother and family and um, relationship um, but it had that small piece of imagery to kind of hold all those pieces together in the world of business and entrepreneurship where i play uh, where i spend most of my time thinking about and talking to business owners and whatnot um there's a principle that is the riches are in the niches basically you start niche and you grow from there. Like you don't, you don't expand to tackle bigger ponds until you are the biggest fish in the small pond that you start, that you start working in. And do you think the same principle applies for authorship? Or do you think that people just stay niche their whole, like assume, let's, let's think about a career author, someone who's going to write multiple prescriptive nonfiction books or, or who dreams about that. But essentially, like someone who dreams about being a best-selling business book author, do you think it's the same path? They start in the niches and then they grow from there, or do you think that they always niche down? Um, I, it's they start in the niches and then they grow up. Okay. Um, I I'm trying to think. I because what happens is is you start writing for your your niche audience, and then. And this doesn't work for everything because some advice really is like, you know, if you're going to advise like how to make the best felt for um, paper machines when you're making toilet paper, that's going to be a really small niche <laughs> that yeah. you're talking to that not a lot of people are going to be interested in. But if you are like, you know, the Brene Browns of the world or the Gaber Mates of the world, um, you're going to be talking about something um, that multiple other groups can then latch onto and it transfers over to. So do you happen to know it. what the niche that Brene Brown started with was? Oh, I'd have to, I'd have to look into it. Cause I'm curious. Go if back all, into her. I'm curious if all of the people that have written like massive best-selling prescriptive nonfiction books, if they all started writing in a niche, 
It would be an maybe. Int- I'd love to hear if anybody has um, examples that say otherwise. I, I know there's like niche books that then explode into mainstream. Like that happens with not or uh, fiction sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, like Stephanie Meyer's um, yeah. Twilight, which was, I mean, that was niche. Super that was niche. Like urban yeah. fantasy. That's like young yeah. adult urban. Uh, I don't even know if you call it urban fantasy. Um paranormal romance uh and then all of a sudden everybody read it yeah um so and you know genre fiction tends to have a larger audience to play with anyway um but it is interesting when when and then it kind of almost snowballs and then you have copycats and then it creates a hunger for that type of genre for a little while after that until people move on to something else yeah I have a question that I often ask on this podcast. I'll ask, what do you think separates a good book from a great book? The kind of book that everyone tells people like, oh my gosh, you have to read this book. And it'd be interesting to think about that question from what we're talking about. So like the book on oranges, for example, what was it about it? Like you can write a book that's so dang niche that it's just, it's tackling this very, very specific particular thing. But how do you write a book like that in such a way where it would have appeal for just about anybody to read? Well, I think for that one, it hit multiple audiences. So it wasn't directed at orange growers or people who like oranges. I mean, everybody, especially in the 70s, when orange juice just became a thing, and that's a whole other story, um, everybody would have been familiar with that fruit or that topic. So you automatically kind of have a little bit of broad appeal because you're starting with something familiar to everybody. Um, but the other thing is, is that it was kind of reshaping the genre of the period. It was like taking a journalistic genre and doing something a little bit different with it, turning it long form. Like how do we um, get an extended lesson um, from this extended form of journalism um, and, and almost kind of like, you know, helped create a new genre. So because of that job that it was doing, um, it also then would have interest to anybody writing nonfiction um, because they would want to have like the prime example of about what that looked like. How do you as a ghostwriter juggle between writing the the niche answers to the questions that are going to be asked by this small audience versus talking about like universal truths in your book so like let's say someone was writing a book about b2b sales it's like how much time do you spend being very very niche on b2b sales versus expanding to talk about universal truths like human psychology or that sort of thing well you start by drilling down and it's almost like a funnel well, I should say hourglass. Um, and essays work like this too. I teach um, composition and it's the same shape. So you kind of, it's both induction and deduction. So you can start with a broad idea and drill down on the details where you start with the details and then drill up to a big idea. Um, and usually unless somebody, even if they're coming in with a, an idea or a thesis they know, by like looking at all, encountering all the details and kind of encounter narratives, anticipating audience questions, all of a sudden your thesis evolves and develops just like a character in a book. And you want that thesis to evolve 
because then you hit them at the conclusion in the end by like, well, you thought it was this. And now here's this like much bigger picture after this idea is kind of all grown up and like has gone on its quest and is now coming back um, in kind of a hero's journey version of a thesis. Um, and so for me, I want to get those details because often authors come in and they're talking fairly, usually fairly broad um, or conversely, if they come in and they're talking very detailed, I'll ask, what's the, what does this mean? What's the bigger lesson here for your audience? Um, what solution is this um, giving us and how is it tying into these, all these other things? Um, so depending on where they are in that hourglass shape, I'm going to try to balance, balance it out. Um, but I never want to go too big because, you know, if you're in a conclusion and you're like, and this has, you know, explains everything we need to know about like love, um, then we're, we're, we're just in like a Beatles song and, and not anywhere necessarily productive for a specific industry. How much time do you spend trying to make sure that your clients are writing something new? Or do you think that that's important? Um, I, I do. And that's where those details and that smallness comes in again. Um, I think the mistake is, is when they're writing too broadly or trying to write too broadly, they're repeating what's already out there. Um, that's the low hanging fruit, so to speak. Um, but everybody, because of their various experiences and perspectives, what they've read in their lives, where they've gone to school, who they've talked to, um, they're all going to remix uh, what's the existing knowledge in a slightly different way. And you need to really get um, some of those, you know, not everything they're going to say is going to be brand new. Some of it's just kind of like stair-stepping um, off of what's pre-existing. But then they're going to get to some sort of detail or how-to or method um, that does recombine all those details in a new and unique way. Um, and that's the core and the meat of their book. Like that's what readers are going to come to see is that new thing that they're giving. Um, and if it takes them half the book to get there, that's too much. You need to like lop some of that off from the beginning and center the book. Um, on that that new method, that recombination of ideas that they've brought to the table. I actually, the more I've thought about this, the more I think that it's less important that writers write something new uh, if, and then th this is the thought. So in the same way that in the world of business, if you can get a client a result twice as fast as someone else, uh, then you don't have to be delivering something new you're delivering something that they would buy from someone else, but you're delivering it twice as fast. You could charge more for that. Well, and, and that's so, the new part. Yeah. That's what so you focus on in your book is how to get there faster. And so you, you center in on what you're providing that's different than everybody else. And publishers yeah. want to know that too. If you go the traditional publishing route and you write a book proposal, they're going to want to know what you're bringing to the table. That's different than everything else out there. Yeah. Like, when I read uh, Alex Hermosi, for example, sometimes I'm reading stuff where I'm like, okay, I've heard this from other people. But what Alex is doing so well is he's making he's making the content so succinct and so um, like he'll draw these very simple pictures of the content where you look at the picture and you're like, I get it. That's exactly where someone else might have taken a chapter or two chapters or three chapters trying to 
trying to get trying to deliver the same idea he's able to deliver it with one page and a diagram and so similarly it's not what the value is not that he's saying something new it's that he's saying something in such a way that my brain gets it so quickly and that's concentrating on the newness then he knows that the delivery or the form of delivering that information is what he's providing that's new so then that becomes really the focus um, of those those books or that knowledge base um, and that uh, series of work. If I were to write a book on um, how does a, so, so the book idea that I have in my head, the focus is like, how does an unknown author uh, predictably sell a lot of books in a short period of time? Um, so that's the, the concept that I wanna give. How would you recommend that I think about nichiness and universality? Like, um, like, okay, so I've got my own personal experience of I have toured for years uh, as an author, and that's been like my primary way of selling books. Um, and so, but like, what would be your advice to me on here's how, you know, here's how you should approach your book. You should try to say, you know, just from your own experience, the seven things that you know how to do really well, or should I try to be like, take a more universal approach and talk about psychology of how people buy and how people encounter things and how stuff gets viral. And I don't know, like what, what, what's your advice? Um, I mean, I'd still kind of go you kind of have to go back and forth and you still i would still suggest in the niches because if it gets too big and too broad and too abstract it becomes really hard for people to connect to if they're going to connect emotionally to your work it's going to be in the imagery and the details um nobody remembers the abstracts they're gonna like i don't remember some of the big abstract ideas in that book about oranges but i remember the scenes he painted about it and then that kind of brought back some of the thesis statements mm. um so and people are going to come if they find that what you're saying is applicable to their lives and their industry and then that's when you can maybe start broadening it out like you can have a different book that's focused towards a different industry that all of a sudden um seemed to latch on so if you find your your niche starts getting a little bit bigger like you start getting um, people interested from other industries or other audiences, then your next book could be like, well, I'm going to take these concepts and here's the new thing. I'm going to broaden them out just a little bit for everyone um, and make this, you know, try to use stories or ideas that are then transferable to multiple industries. And then you have a brand new book, right? One really focused on your industry and then one kind of broadened out. Um, Temple Grandin, uh, was a good one example for this because um, she is a keynote speaker um, and is, um, I guess, fairly low grade on the autism spectrum. Um, and she basically made her um, speaking career talking about like human relationship to animals um, and how people with autism kind of see the world differently and see it more along the lines of how animals see it. And then that uh, creates a better understanding of animals. But then she, because people from the autism community, I mean, she made her initial money de uh, designing slaughterhouses. 
So some of her books is like really niche industry on that. But then people are like, well, wait a minute, what about this aspect of autism? So then she wrote books that were more like what the um, experience of um, herself living with autism was like. And then she wrote books about animals. Specifically. So she's a great example of what we're talking about. So her first book is about slaughterhouses because that's what she knew. Well, it was probably pamphlets. It's pretty small, but like that's okay. what she was. <laughs> she like revolutionized that industry because she basically uh, designed less scary slaughterhouses for cows um, okay. because, you know, it was it was hard to get the cows in there with how they were designed. And she's uh -huh. like, well you're not looking at about how the animals see it take away all these shadows and these hanging bits that are scaring them and then they just go right in there and it's easy no mishaps no mistakes more humane everybody's maybe except for the cows are happy what a wild journey to go from slaughterhouse design to here's how someone with autism experiences animals yeah when they were they were related but yeah. people like looked at that and like wait a minute can you we want you to speak more to these other aspects. And she's like, sure, I'll, I'll talk about whatever you want me to talk about. Um, and she actually uses a ghostwriter um, because her uh, just makes it hard for her to write um, and some of the metaphorical thinking. So she actually has a lot of, uh, uh, she actually collaborates with a lot of writers um, to help her out. So random off the wall question, just because I'm thinking about it. What do you think about book length? like for nonfiction, prescriptive nonfiction, especially, um, how do you think about book length? Uh, if it's interesting, you kind of want to go shorter. Um, I mean, it depends. Like if you're going to be like, I'm going to do a basic how to, you want that pretty small. Um, if you're going to kind of go a little bit, I mean, the oranges book itself is actually a fairly short book. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's not like writing a tome about that particular topic. Um, and there was things that he left out and it's like, yeah, that doesn't quite fit or, um, it kind of detracts a little bit from this main storyline he started to come up with. Um, is there anything from a craft perspective that you think needs to be disrupted? Like when I think about your typical, um, and I, I think about prescriptive nonfiction way more than I think about memoirs. So I'm sorry if that's, you write more memoirs. Um, but the, as far as craft goes, what what it seems like is it's like story, idea, story, idea, story, idea, like all through the book. Is there anything that you think needs disruption there? Or do you think, no, that's the tried and true framework? I mean, that is a tried and true framework. It's it's one of those things that the more creative you get in that, the slower your readers are going to go. And it might be harder for them to parse the information so again this is kind of an audience question like are your readers wanting to like get through this quickly get the basic ideas get the steps and then and then take that and apply it and leave like are they really application minded and if so they're going to want a simpler you know image idea storyline if it's a how-to it might look something different like here's some background here's when it works when it doesn't work here's the steps here we go um, so in some respects, it, the content kind of dictates, um, a little bit of that format. You want to kind of make sure you give them definitions and background first. Um, I mean, essays like nonfiction essays pretty much follow the same formula almost all the way through. And if it deviates from that, um, it gets into more creative genres, which again, 
can be more meandering. They slowly slow the audience down. Um, their purpose is to like make you sit there and struggle a little bit to understand what's going on. Um, they might mean multiple things. Uh, and for something like memoir, that might be more appropriate to get a little experimental um, because it is closer to a literary type of genre. Um, so for instance, I think, you know, Annie Dillard seeing, well, I'm sorry, that was from Pilgrim at Tinker Creek was kind of famous for like adding a cat into her experience that never actually existed. Okay. Um, but she wanted it there for kind of like uh, metaphorical purposes and to kind of illustrate um, in spirit some of what she was thinking and experiencing. So she kind of took that creative liberty and added a cat. Okay. <laughs> she never had, it, had come across in real life. And she got flack for it because people were like, this didn't happen. How could you put it in a nonfiction if it didn't happen? It's like, well, creative nonfiction, you can get a little I think I agree with her critics yeah you wouldn't want the cat in there either I don't want to read something that's non-fiction that has fiction in it fiction elements oh it's yeah. so tough though memory is such a weird sticky thing well okay it's different if they're remembering it incorrectly that that's at least their true memory of it even if they are not remembering it correctly yeah. Well, I always think of Tim O'Brien too and his trauma memories from war because his stuff gets really wild and you're never quite sure what's true or what's what's fiction. And yeah, to me, that's protecting different. I'm you happy from. to read that. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, you know, I would consider kind of in that creative nonfiction realm as well. Yeah. Um, Just to get practical for a minute on our main idea here of um, bigger isn't better. Um, from the perspective of an author and from the perspective of a ghostwriter. So if, if a ghostwriter is listening, what do you think is something practical that they should make sure that they're doing to make sure that they're writing for their clients, not a grand thing, but a niche thing? Um, I think that comes in with that initial book positioning, like making sure the audience is drilled down, making sure the goals of the book are drilled down. So when your author starts to, and this is kind of, um, I think standard practice in the industry, but it means when your author starts to drift, you can always bring them back. It's like, does your audience really need to know this right now to get the solution that they want? Um, and kind of outlining that initial working thesis um, as well, even before you start um, outlining and and how much room do you leave? Chapters. How much room do you leave for things that are interesting that your audience doesn't need to know? Um, well, during the interview process, I will kind of let them go. And you almost kind of say throughout this, like, I'm not, from what we've outlined, I don't quite know where this fits. I like this story. And maybe we'll talk about where it could work. So for instance, if they kind of toss off a really interesting anecdote that um, wasn't initially plotted, um, I will definitely record it and then write it down. Um, and then if I think it fits, and this is where the creativity of the of a good ghostwriter comes in, right? This is what separates um, somebody who might be writing for themselves um, or not so good ghostwriter is that you'll kind of have these moments where you're like, this wasn't initially supposed to be anywhere, but I think it's a good story. I think you could take a really good lesson out of it. And I think it could connect to like something you're doing in chapter two. So I will put it there with a note I think it could go here. This is how I think it could connect to your thesis. 
what do you think author and then we'll play with it from there and sometimes they'll be like yeah I really like the story but maybe it goes better in chapter three um and connecting to the thesis in that chapter and we'll and we'll move it or there's a maybe this doesn't go in this book at all um and we can delete it or we can maybe save it for a second book yeah um and then from the perspective of an author how would you advise someone who is writing their own book to make sure that they like is there like a practical thing that they got to make sure that they do so that they're not writing a grand concept or writing something super niche um i would say just working with a developmental editor or at least having it go through you never want to edit your own stuff even if you're a professional so even uh -huh. when professionals write, they will have an editor on the other side, double checking that kind of stuff. It's like, did Got I, it. did I really get in the weeds here? Like, um, so that's one, one technique. The other technique is, um, you kind of do your due diligence and again, kind of do that positioning, um, thesis yourself. Like what is your book doing? Uh, what's the action or solution you're trying to get your reader to do with it? Um, and then when you have those stories, always connect it back to that major thesis. Well, how does this story build on this thesis? What different thing, um, how can I develop this thesis with this story? If the story can't develop the thesis, it might have to be thrown out or maybe not thrown out, left to the side or saved for later. Do you think that a how-to book should have a thesis statement where the thesis statement is not the how? That'd be, that'd be a good question. Like I'm thinking about, you know, if I write a how-to on self-publishing, does it need a thesis that is not, this is how you, like, like an overarching idea or a, a theme that I'm constantly coming back to? Yeah. And I think this goes to, again, that idea of what you were saying. What are you saying that's small and different? So how to self-publish quickly right? How to self-publish um, without or with minimal editing, how to self-publish without spending a lot of money. Like that last bit of tagline is what you'd be adding that'd be different and it's going to help self-select for your audience. Um, so anybody looking for like a how to self-publish book in their minds is trying to solve the problem of like budgeting. Yeah. Um, will all of a sudden see the one about costs and be like, that's the one I want. I don't need the rest of them. I just need that one. Mm, got it. Love it. Oh, this has been a great conversation, Amanda. Thanks for letting me kind of take you everywhere in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was really good. Um, is uh, is there any, uh, where would you like listeners to go to connect with you some more? Um, right now I am on LinkedIn. Um, I think that's my main thing. There'll be a website hopefully coming in the near future, um, capeandcowlmedia.com. Um, it is it is under construction, so it's not live, but eventually it will be there. And um, what is Cape and Cowl Media? That is the uh, new LLC my husband, Chas Hoppy, and I have created um, that will be specializing in ghostwriting, book coaching, um, and developmental editing, um, and plus sundry other uh, small editing bits um, as as people come to us with their various bespoke projects. Awesome. Cape and Cowl Media. Very cool. Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure.